This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a wonderful show for you today. We had a lovely conversation with our colleague Larry Jewett about legislation which, if enacted, would significantly change uh, U.S. coinage. And we want to thank you so much for electing to listen to this podcast. We hope that you will give us four more weeks or four more years, whatever it takes for us to talk about this wonderful hobby that we all love. Please subscribe, listen, vote for us on your favorite podcast platform so we can do this every week. (laughs) That's a topical plug there, Jeff. So most of our discussion with Larry focused on what might happen in the future. But Jeff, let's pivot and look at the past. What was happening this week in numismatic history? So we go back to November 11th, 1905, when sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens informed President Theodore Roosevelt that he had worked up coinage sketches. Now, the studious collector knows about the St. Gaudens gold double eagle. He knows that St. Gaudens also produced a $10 gold coin design, I believe. These designs would be part of the impetus that would usher in the renaissance of American coinage, about which Roger Burdett has written three books. In that renaissance, you had the quote-unquote mercury dime, you have the buffalo nickel. It's just that whole sweeping change of coinage design at the early 20th century, and that was really kicked off by this event, November 11th, 1905. Oh, that's really cool. And I think students of Augusta St. Gaudens or, or studious collectors of Augusta St. Gaudens' designs will certainly be interested in that anecdote. So we spoke with Larry, who is an associate editor at Coin World, my old position. And it's always fun to talk about how different numismatic writers cover different topics. But how were numismatic writers covering numismatic topics in 1982, Jeff? We're taking a look at an old edition of Coin World from the early 1980s, specifically 1982. And what was going on on the front page of that edition? So we look to the November 10th, 1982 issue, and we're going to continue talking about U.S. gold coins. What was going on in the hobby at the time? Well, the big news that issue was that some U.S. gold coin rarities commanded record-breaking $625,000 bids. These were two major U.S. numismatic rarities sold for that identical mark. We're talking about an 1822 half eagle, and we're talking about the unique 1870 S $3 gold piece. These were part of the United States gold coin collection, which that's how the collection was framed at the time. And it was, I know looking back that we know that that was actually the Eliasburg collection, but I don't know that at the time, you know, people knew that that was the Elias. I mean, I think everybody knew, but it was like the worst kept secret. But, you know, officially the auction firm publicizes it as such. I mean, we had a situation more recently where the Demarate collection was, we know that it was actually owned by a, a specific person and people in the hobby know, but it, it, but nobody would go on record and say that because the family wants privacy, all that sort of stuff. And that's how, how this collection was framed at the time. So this was, we know looking back, the great benefit of being in this side of history is that this was from the Eliasburg collection. And my gosh, these are major important coins that were sold late October by Bowers and Ruddy Galleries. And uh, there was just a flurry, more than 300 bidders competing for these uh, 1,074 gold coins. The catalog for that sale became the genesis or the basis for some numismatic literature, which is maybe I should have used that for my what I'm reading, but I didn't think about that. But it's a major milestone event 
in numismatics that, you know, these two coins, you know, we're talking about this week as we record, I wrote a story about a record-breaking gold coin that sold for almost the equivalent of $4.2 million U.S. in London last week or a couple weeks ago as you listen to this. So the $625,000 mark today doesn't seem so vaunted, but it certainly was in 1982. That was commanding a lot of attention of the hobby because of the importance of the Eliasberg collection. Obviously, you know, many readers of Coin World could not afford the Eliasberg collection coins, the marquee pieces like that. So I'm sure they were talking about other things on the letters page. What drew your eye there? There was really one consistent theme through the letters page, and that was discussed at the Olympic coin designs for 1983 and 1984, which I gather were revealed in in a a previous edition of Coin World fairly close to this one, because of the eight letters on the page, five of them are all expressing some form of disgust at the designs, and two of the other three are two to three sentences long. So, you know, there are several very lengthy letters that are all essentially saying the same thing. So I just picked out one that I felt kind of captured the spirit of the criticism, and it's entitled Olympic Designs Disappoint, and it reads... I just received my order form for the Olympic commemoratives, and I am horribly disappointed in their designs. They lack imagination and are the same song and dance like the cheap foreign issues. Why wasn't the public invited to design the coins as they did the beautiful 1976 bicentennial commemoratives? The eagles are overpowering, horrendously monstrous, and atrocious. I feel the Amazonian design of the 1872 patterns would have been beautiful. She is an athletic beauty. Also, on the barber designs, the women wear an Olympic wreath on their heads. The eagle of the 1795 gold coinage is graceful and holds an Olympic wreath. I could have done better in designing these coins. These are the ugliest coins I have ever seen. I suspect once they are issued, they will drop in value, and later on, they will be sold cheaply. What a horrible letdown. I thought a Greek theme like the Amazonian or Barber or St. Gon's designs would be beautiful, but it's the same old song and dance. Also, why can't the coins be ordered separately? I'm now so glad we are getting just three coins rather than 25. I shudder at what they would have looked like. These coins lack artistic merit and were thrown together in design. I see how badly halves are needed and that our whole economy will collapse without them. Why not mint a two-cent piece to save on penny production? We have no quarter shortage or attrition, so halves really aren't needed, but a two-cent piece would be of greater use. Also, when are we getting our uncirculated sets back? If they can produce commemorative sets, uncut currency sets and halves, then why not uncirculated sets? Also, the copper-plated zinc set seems an apparent... (laughs) Right? Um, Also, the copper-plated zinc scent seems an apparent success, but just wait for a few years when they start calling Old Abe Old Silver Nose. It's from Bob Olickson of Parma, Ohio. So I picked that letter for a couple reasons. One is that he references the 1872 Amazonian patterns, which we talked with uh, Saul Teichman about in a previous episode. And I think the reader is essentially right. They are beautiful designs. I thought that his comment that half dollars, I assume that's what he means by halves, are needed and that our whole economy will collapse without them. I have to assume he's being sarcastic or at least hyperbolic. I thought that was kind of an intense statement. And then also, um, I found it interesting that uh, he made reference to uncut currency sets. Most collectors know that you can order sheets of uncut currency from the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. You can order them now, but in 1982, they actually hadn't been around all that long. The Bureau of Engraving and Printing had stopped making uncut sheets available for collectors in the 1950s. And then in October of 1981, they reintroduced them. So that was actually, that reference kind of seems innocuous, but the, uh, the uncut sheets had been introduced Uh, just the year before um, this column, actually almost exactly a year, I guess 13 months or so before this letter was written. And then the sort of larger thematic reason I opted to discuss it is that something that we discussed with Larry is kind of the propensity of collectors to complain a lot about new designs. And, you know, the reaction to a lot of the new coin designs that have been proposed uh, and the legislation enabling their creation is in Congress right now. You know, he mentioned how a lot of collectors had written comments either on CoinWorld's website or on forums elsewhere, basically complaining about the designs that they felt that the sort of topics or themes that the designs would 
try to communicate were you know unworthy in some way or that the designs themselves weren't very good. I bring up this letter to suggest that collector criticism, sharp collector criticism, is nothing new. And in 1982, Coin World readers were seemingly uniformly horrified by the designs proposed for the 1983 and 84 Olympic commemorative coins. So I thought that it fit fairly well uh, with our interview and the letter just made some interesting, you know, made mention of a couple of numismatically interesting subjects and made a couple of uh, interesting statements. I thought the sentence overpowering, horrendously monstrous and atrocious was um, <laughs> that's a strong statement. So anyway, I found I found that interesting and thought that it fit well with our interview. Jeff. That was sort of what was going on on the letters page in November of 1982. So anyway, so that was the letter that I felt encapsulated reader opinion fairly well for, for that edition. But now that we've reviewed a past edition of Coin World, Jeff, what else have you been reading lately? What's on your bookshelf and uh, what would you like to share with the listeners? Our conversation with Larry was wide ranging and I don't recall that we got into grading too much, but certainly grading is the uh, you know most uh, popular and opinionated and exciting topic for collectors. You know, everybody has an opinion. And uh, I found, as I'm organizing my library, I actually found that I have two copies of this. I don't know why, but it's a really neat book. It's called Grading Coins, a Collection of Readings, edited by Richard Bagg and James J. Jelinski. And what this does is it, this runs reprints of articles that originally appeared in the Numismatist, the Numismatic Scrapbook Magazine, and the Whitman Numismatic Journal. The book was published in 1977, and it runs articles from 1892 to 1976. So the book is certainly, in a sense, outdated, but I love that it gives you a really nice snapshot of how people in the hobby were thinking about and dealing with coin grading throughout this essentially 85-year uh, period almost, from 1892 to 1976. You can just flip through there. It talks about you know the importance of the Red Book. There's um, Abe Kossov's different um, musings, paper read before the California State Numismatic Association. There's images of things about, you know, what's AU, what's BU, the Canadian classification system. It's just, a like I say, a really cool snapshot of what the hobby was thinking and how they were grappling with it. And it's a perennial topic. So there are other books that deal with grading in a I guess, more encompassing sense and a more, you know, like Coin World's Making the Grade, Shameless Plug Time, Flash, 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 is a phenomenal book that gives you images, full color of so many coin series. And you can see where the high points are, where the coins start to wear away first, that kind of thing. It really is a phenomenal resource. If there's anything about which to be critical, it's that it cannot lay flat as it is currently constituted, because you like to be able to lay the coin flat and hold the coin in your hand and compare it to the, the image and go, no, that's not a VF, it's more of an EF or, you know, whatever, but, and the images are enormous. So, you know, there are better resources as far as to visualize grading, but the thought leaders what the thought leaders of the hobby were thinking about and talking about grading, this book really encapsulates it. And I think it was 10 bucks, you know, so I mean, it's, it didn't break the bank. It's a nice thing to refer to. Yes, all this stuff can probably be found in online archives today, but my gosh, the time it would take to find them individually, you know, the fact that this is some of the value is the fact that it's all together in, in one volume. So that was um, what caught my eye this week as I looked at my bookcase and, hey, what's what's going on and what do I need to refer to? So that is, you can book it in that regard. The reason I love my numismatic library is because I don't know jack about this stuff. I mean, I jack squat. I mean, it's the hobby. is. I'm blessed to have been in this professionally almost 17 years but I could do this the rest of my life and not learn uh, a fourth of what there is to know. But I know that I can go to the experts who wrote the books on these different topics to learn stuff. That gives me the knowledge I need to do the job, but also to answer the trivia question. I was going to say, speaking of not knowing squat, I think it's time for you to ask me a question. <laughs> um, my, my not knowing squat, to be clear, that was the, I know, I know. <laughs> that's the crux I know. of that. So, so last episode, I asked you, 
because we were talking about the San Francisco Mint, the, the assay office, it you know changed titles over years. So what U.S. president recommended the establishment of a branch mint in California? This is not specifically coin related. It's not like, you know, how many stars does this design have or whatever, but it's, you know, w- without this president's intervention, the San Francisco Mint may have come at a later time, a different time or not at all. So who do we credit? And uh, this is a name that, uh, you know, we're in the presidential season. Certainly when we think about presidents in history, this one is not exactly at the top of the list. Any idea? It wouldn't, it, was it Franklin Pierce? Uh, no, but, you know, you're, you're thinking in a similar, you know, vein of horribleness. <laughs> oh, uh, James Buchanan? No, but but you're close. Um, when you say horrible, that's that's what I... I know, those, those <laughs> Isn't he consistently rated one of the worst presidents in U.S. history? Yes, and I think this person maybe is in, is in the top five or the lowest five, if you will. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe my misread is wrong. I don't mean to intentionally misdirect you. There aren't a million options. No, there aren't. Um, wouldn't have been Millard Fillmore. Correct. Oh, it was? Yes, Damn. that was my million options was the, the gentle hint I was going for. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, Millard Fillmore. Okay. I, I, I was just running through presidents that I knew who were in office in the mid-19th century. <laughs> And I knew, it, and I knew it wasn't Lincoln. So I'm like, okay, not Lincoln. It's one of his predecessors, yeah. and you know, Tyler, who's, who's an office in the 1850s. Yeah. So there you go. You got it. Uh, took a little coaxing, a little time, but you got it. So now this one, I know this is the gimme. This is a free shot. This is easy peasy. That's never a safe assumption with me, but fair enough. Let's <laughs> let's hear the question. We're talking about U.S. gold today with all this, you know, the Garrett collection. Or, uh, sorry, did I, I said Eliasberg earlier. I think it, it I meant the Garrett collection, I think. Um, so I, I hope, you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Garrett collection. Anyway, the Garrett collection um, was the U.S. gold collection. We've talked about St. Gaudens and his gold. So in that vein... Name the smallest circulating denomination of gold coin produced by the U.S. Mint. Ah, you know what? I actually do know that. And hopefully all of you listeners do too, but we will keep you in suspense until next week. So mull that over. I think most people who are familiar with even just creating a U.S. typeset will probably be able to figure that one out. But while you were waiting for the answer to that trivia question, we hope that you enjoy our conversation with our colleague, Larry Jewett. Jeff and I are really excited to have Larry Jewett back on the podcast to discuss some numismatic uh, and coin-related legislation and to uh, just have a discussion and see how things are going over on the print side. How are you doing, Larry? Doing well, man. Great to be uh, back here again. Appreciate the opportunity. A lot of exciting things going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. I'll say we're recording this on November third, so uh, exciting is a uh, exciting is a word for what's happening. Um, so legislation is uh, is making its way through Congress, which, if enacted, would change U.S. coinage pretty significantly. What is the legislation calling for, and do you have any sense as to what the public response to the proposed coins will be or has been? It's pretty wide sweeping, is what's out there now, and of course, you know, looking ahead years in advance and. And the impact that America the Beautiful Quarter program has had on some things and led to a lot of it. I mean, it's, it's so diverse. It's almost like an octopus. There's so many different things that are involved with it. In fact, you could even see alloy changes. You could see a lot of design changes, a lot of thematic type stuff. Youth sports uh, is a theme that's coming up in there. And, of course, after the uh, 100th anniversary of the suffrage movement, uh, there's a lot of thought and a lot of talk about the women and the role they've played in it. You know, a lot of concern about recognizing and keeping the history that we have of this country and maintaining some semblance of uh, normalcy, if you would, on what we expect coins to be. They're supposed to carry a message, not just the value of that they have on them there, but also talk a little bit about the society that we have and and the way things are going here. And it's going to be interesting to see what that bill, once it gets through the Senate, once the bill that deals with the coinage of the next up to 10 years is going to look like, and then some of the other legislation that's going through its different gyrations. But the fact of the matter is, it's the legislative process itself can make news last for a long, long time. I mean, this has been in the process for quite some time. 
and it's now gotten some traction. And the question is, as you mentioned, with recording this on Election Day, we're not only dealing with presidential election, we're dealing with the legislative elections that could change the composure of the legislature as we know it and bring in new opinions or new views or new things like that, that once these newly elected individuals get onto committees, then they may have put their stamp on it. We went through that with the Supreme Court nominee and looking at all that going on on the judicial side of it. Now, the legislative side has its chance to change its uh, shape and size, and not size, but just shape and see, and that could impact uh, bills that are in committee. It could impact bills that have some traction where they might not be as appealing, or they uh, conversely, they could be more appealing to the newly elected. And uh, obviously, the new ones come in, they don't get really positions of power, but they still have to be on committees, and they still have to have their voices heard, and they still have to have equal representation. So until it actually becomes a completed pass signed by uh, the branches that need to sign it and it moves on, it's really just subjective. It's really just conjecture at this point. And again, it's subject to a lot of scrutiny right now. Once it's known and the collecting community has rang in to say these are dumb ideas, I mean, it kind of goes back to the colorization that we just had with the National Basketball Hall of Fame and the uproar that came with that. And knowing that the contract calls for more colorized coins somewhere down the road, we don't know which ones. We don't know if these new coins are part of it. Oh, there's a lot we don't know right now, but there's a lot that once uh, somebody sees something, they have an opinion on it. I personally, I like the idea about the youth sports. I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, we're involved with Special Olympics in this household. I really think that that's a good recognition of the disabled and, and the youth sports type thing. Some people may not think that that's worthy of being on a coin. That's more something devoted for a medallic program and not necessarily a coinage program. So again, it's just like there's a lot of unknowns right now. Some of this could fall by the wayside, amended out, or whatever the case may be. But nonetheless, because of the system we have set up, the involvement of the government continues to to play an important role in this and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from here and how it goes from here and what's going to change and what's going to what's going to survive we have a big anniversary coming up in 2026 as we celebrate 250 years how are we going to commemorate that i've seen him say bring back the drummer boy well whether it happens or not remains to be seen but there's a lot going on and of course with the legislature in recess right now not much is going to happen until we weather some of the things that are uh, they're happening out there, the uh, current situation on the pandemic, the change of the composition of the legislature, and that type of thing. So it bears watching. And uh, then again, you know, if someone has an opinion on something related to this, they have the access to have their voice heard by contacting their legislators and let them know how they feel about it. Will it bring about change? Well, I'll tell you this right now. You do nothing. You're guaranteed to have nothing change. But if you do something, there's a possibility. And that's all we're asking for is that possibility. You got five minutes of that. Hope you can use something. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested in assessing the partisan dynamics of how these laws change if people from certain parties are more likely to object to certain provisions in the law and how new representatives might feel as opposed – new representatives or senators – would feel as opposed to incumbent Congress people. So that's interesting. And certainly listeners who you know should go, will post in the show notes links to Cornworld's coverage of the bills and people who have thoughts about it certainly should consider reaching out to their representatives. And it's funny, you mentioned the drummer boy, because I know how often I find bicentennial quarters from 1976 in change still. So whatever design ends up getting selected for the semi-quincentennial, I believe I'm saying that right, for the semi-quincentennial quarter, it'll be interesting because, you know, I still find the, the bicentennial quarters in my change. So whatever design we end up with, we will, uh, you know, consumers will be stuck with for some time to come. You touched upon the politics of coinage redesign, and it gives mind to something that I recall from about 17 years ago, 16 years ago, when the redesign of the Jefferson nickel was being promoted and contemplated. And you had a then relatively young representative, Eric Cantor from Virginia, who was leading the charge to ensure that Jefferson and Monticello remained 
in some form or fashion on that coin because that coin was free advertising for that state and tourism and the native sun, just as you see anytime there is an effort to rid the nation of the one cent coin, legislators from Illinois stand up quickly and demand that Abraham Lincoln remain in circulation, never mind that he's also on the $5 note. But there's definitely a legislative component to all this, and it harkens back to what Chris and I have said multiple times, that all coins and paper money are political objects, just as Massachusetts, Chris's home state, had strong representation of Representative Barney Frank, who chaired the banking committee under which a lot of this legislation falls. Crane & Company is a Massachusetts-based company that creates the cotton paper blend for American paper money, and they have a vested interest in ensuring that the dollar note remains in circulation. If it does not, then demand for their product is essentially cut in half. And so their demand for representation and and their involvement in the process then, you know, extends to whomever is representing that state in Congress in both bodies. You know, you see it in Arizona with the mining interest when the one cent coin is, is being tackled again. And so the tentacles, I love that reference that there's so many tentacles to these topics. And the interesting part about it, you know, we talked mostly about federal legislation, but recently there was a bill introduced for the New Jersey General Assembly that was dealing with the sale of bullion and then gold and silver and how it affects retirement incomes and preying on the elderly and that type of thing, which uh, there was also a recent activity where 30 states banded together with federal agency to put a stop to a company that was selling that. So the, uh, the government, whereas it's looked upon as an evil sometimes, is also there to help protect us as well. And so introduction of a bill that would strengthen penalties for those who prey upon the weak, the elderly, the uh, those who are uninformed as to the matters of not just numismatics, but also uh, about economy as well. So there, you know, there has to be a rhyme and a reason for what needs to be done. But the, the activity on the federal level tends to draw the attraction. But there's also activity on the state level where they can be involved. And when you mentioned about different states having their vested interests in uh, Right away, when I hear about Jefferson, I go, well, you guys got Washington and Virginia. You don't need two two presidents. There's other presidents (laughs) out there. And I right away think about the Roosevelt dime. It's been around for a while. And it's like, well, is that going to change at all? I mean, it's been been some time about that. I don't know if there are provisions or, or any kind of activities underway or if there's even a need for change. But I think, you know, when you talk about the states with that America, the beautiful quarter program and the the states having their chance to ring in on something that may placate them for a while, but apparently not. Well, certainly. And, you know, it also makes me think, Jeff, you mentioning the cotton paper blend company in Massachusetts. That made me also think of our interview with Zach Edick and Jamie Kovach, the co-directors of Heads Up, Will We Stop Making Sense, the, um, the documentary we covered months ago now on the podcast about whether or not we'll keep the scent as a denomination. And it made me think of the, um, the zinc mining interests that, mm-hmm. that have lobbied apparently fairly successfully to have the U.S. Mint continue striking cents because that increases demand for their product as well. So there is a political dimension to all of this and that this legislation is moving forward. I'm actually I'm, I'm curious, Larry, if you happen to have any insight on this. The legislation calling for these sweeping changes to American coinage that they're moving through Congress so quickly now. Is that an acknowledgement on the part of the bodies involved that there will be new representatives soon and so they're trying to get some business completed? Or is it just does, does it just happen to be happening now? I think there have been a lot of distractions with the current conditions, the pandemic, and a lot of different things. I mean, a lot of effort was spent on the first stimulus check and also on the uh, the second stimulus package that, that took a lot of attention. And there are other matters that simply could be described as more pressing for the general well-being of the country than what the next cent's going to look like or the next five-cent piece is going to look like. So consequently, I, I don't know that there was any kind of pecking order or priority or had anything to do with the composition of the legislature, anything like that. I don't know. I mean, they don't take things in numeric order. It's, you know, it all, it's like a grocery bag. I mean, when you look at the groceries that are laying there on the counter, how you decide how to bag them based on 
the confines of the bag and, and the different the composition of the bag, that type of thing. Some committees may be moving faster than others. It's just there's so many variables here again that, that enter into this that I don't know that the thought about, hey, you know, I'm up for re-election, I got to do something here. There, I don't recall any grandstanding on this bill or anything like that. So I don't know that that actually entered into it or whether it was just it's, uh, it's turning the barrel. Well, I, ha- I also have to imagine that coin designs are a secondary consideration to representatives whose districts or states are dealing with, you know, massive COVID spikes as well. Again, it's I imagine this is a, not necessarily the highest priority. And honestly, I don't think that it should be. People should be focused on getting relief to their constituents if, uh, if they can. So well, an interesting follow up to that, I mean, as we talk about the pandemic and the effect that it's had and, you know, the it was interesting to come out and find out that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing is actually going to be stepping up their order, that the Fed has ordered more paper currency for the 2021 fiscal year than they have in the past. And it's uh, kind of an interesting situation from all the conversations we've had about cashless societies and uh, the possibility that currency was a carrier of the, of the disease back in the day when it was first announced and that type of thing. But now we find it interesting that there's going to be more bills put into circulation, more notes put into circulation than there was in some of the years past. And that was by the decision made by the government based on the idea that there is obviously a need for that currency to be there. I remember responding to a reader's question in CoinWorld's Reader's Ask column who was concerned about contracting COVID through in-person cash transactions. And I then researched what different central banks and other financial institutions do to clean cash if they do clean cash. He proposed, I forget what solution he proposed soaking coins in to, to try to kill any COVID germs that might be on their surfaces. But that's certainly something that for readers of Coin World was front of mind, or at least was something that people are, are thinking about. But so do you have any sense as to how the pandemic is impacting that demand for more cash? Like you said, cashless transactions have become more and more popular as a, a safe or at least safer way of transacting at a time when, you know, in-person interactions can be fairly lethal. What need is being met with increased physical currency production? Obviously, they looked at the assessment of uh, circulation and, and bills out of circulation type thing. But I think the the idea, I mean, the, when the coin shortage was announced, it was all related to the coins and making people turn in the ones that they had saved up. And there was never any mention about the dollar bill, the $5 bill, the $10 bill, the 20 I mean, ATMs continued to pour out the $20 bills without any, uh, any, any interruption in demand. And of course, the $20 bill leads that order because of the demand for ATM and uh, the people in society now. I mean, when was the last time you went to a bank teller other than to buy rolls of coins? You just uh, go drive up to the ATM, get your 20s, take them out. They break them into 10s and 5s at the merchants, and you, you go from there. So it's just kind of interesting that the cashless debate is going to continue for a long time. It is much more convenient. Yes, I get that. But the idea is there's times when you just want to have that in your hand, and you know it, it's really tough. If you're a server and you see a, a tip down there, you see a $5 bill, You know that's great. You know You see it written on a piece of paper, it doesn't have near the same impact. You know, you can't give a kid, you know, you give a kid a gift card. Back in the day, it used to be a $5 bill inside of a, of a card. Even though my wife works for a card company, I won't mention any card companies. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just the idea that cash does have its place. And it's not all romantic. It's still functional. And the idea that the assessment has been made that we can have more of this produced by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, you have to think that the employees at those facilities in Texas and D.C. had to kind of wonder what their, their future was going to be like because the headlines were all about the mint and the coin shortage and all this, but yet they produce money as well. And it's just good. I think we're going to have cash in terms of not cash and coin, but cash is in dollar bills around enough. There are people who can't, because of their income strata or whatever, have to rely on cash. They have to go to a uh, payday loan type place. They have to have that type of stuff. So there's still functionality there. And I think the government recognizes that we need to keep that going. It ain't broke, so don't fix it. There's a whole group of folks. I mean, I you know I can go to the local Walmart or Kroger and, and people who 
cash their paycheck at the counter, that kind of thing. And, you know, the merchants not only charge a nominal fee, but then they're hoping that that customer is going to spend some of that money in their store. So it works for them in that regard. I also think the additional order, the increase in the order, paper money, that's, that's another subtle way to inject money into the money supply without having to do, you know, T-bills and bonds and all the, all those other functional mechanisms that exist on the financial side. Also, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before relating to the coin shortage and the impact of the pandemic on not only on, on numismatics, but on currency production. You know, something I learned very early in my time working in Ohio for CoinWorld was that a staggering number of Americans are unbanked or underbanked or don't have access to traditional banking infrastructure, um, checking accounts, things like that. You know, and for those people, cash is is incredibly important. And Larry, as you mentioned, people who are unbanked often are are working class. And it's it's worth understanding that that cash is vital to many sectors of the economy and to those who, like I mentioned, are, are unbanked or underbanked. So it strikes me as appropriate, you know, that the government is is trying to to meet that demand because I don't think that, you know, even though many more people are are transacting without cash, for those who continue to use cash, now it's absolutely necessary to have plenty in circulation. So it's good that they're making efforts to meet that need. Yeah. And it's important that it be clean, too, because I've spent the last few minutes while you were talking looking up money laundering, and that's not the same as cleaning the dollar bills. So, <laughs> yeah, those are those are a little bit different, huh? Live and learn. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting as we, you know, the impact of what is being decided today and what impact it will have. I mean, none of us are capable of predicting the future, and uh, it, it's critical for us to understand what the changes we make have the impact and you know you go to i use the grocery store example once again and and look and i can go to the self-checkout or i can go to where there's an employee and you know the interaction you have the self-checkout may be uh, functional may be quicker may be efficient to to a point but you lose the social side of things how's your day today machine doesn't respond it just wants your money person behind the counter, you know, that's that's a different thing. They handle your transaction and it's it becomes a more personal thing. It becomes a more, the connectivity is there for that. And I think that's something that money brings to us is the opportunity to have that connectivity and that social connection that the impersonal transactions, which may be the way of the future. There are several things in society that as a person of my age, this is all new to me, and we had to relearn things. I mean, the idea that I go back to math class when I asked to use a calculator, and the teacher said, you'll never be able to carry a calculator around with you everywhere you go, and that's not true. You know, we all have one. Even the, the youngest have them, and they're called cell phones. So it's just, it just comes down to money's role in society has changed. Every, everything's role in society has changed somewhat, and the idea that we are looking ahead to make sure that coinage, to make sure that currency has some sort of position within it and protect that position that it has. So it's just it's just an interesting thing to keep an eye on, not knowing what the uh, end game is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I hear a lot of dealers and other numismatic professionals speculating that the shift to cashless transactions will have a negative impact on hobby participation and that they worry that if people become unused to using cash or if cash becomes sort of a relic that people won't be interested in collecting physical currency anymore which of course that's the basis for numismatics is is collecting coins and paper money so i'm curious Larry, what's your read on the impact of an increasingly cashless society on numismatics? My impression, not that it accounts for much, is that people will continue collecting coins and paper money. They'll just be thinking about them differently and they won't have sort of that day-to-day -day experience with it. But I don't think that that will necessarily stop people from collecting antique coins and paper money. What's your read on that? And my read on that is very similar because the idea is money, coins, currency all have different. It's not just the value that's stated on that piece. It's not if you look upon 
a note as a $1 bill as a means of exchange for goods or services, then yeah, it becomes a, uh, a pedantic type vehicle for an ends to a mean to an ends. And if you look upon it as something that's, you know, really got some kind of luster to it, when you look at a lot of the, the coins, you know, the U.S. coins being what they are, but then you start looking at coins from other countries. And that's been one of the things as a relatively new collector and having experience with those who never possibly thought about being involved with numismatics and you show them a picture of a coin that's got a kangaroo on it and it's like, whoa, that's pretty cool. You know, it's just, you know, the idea that the currency and the pictures that we have on the notes are beautiful around the world. The fact that the, the colors, when I went to the Bahamas the first time, just the idea that those were colorful notes was just great. So it all, it depends on what triggers the potential numismatist. I have a friend who was a collector as a child. He recently went through an accident where he was laid up and he got to looking around at things and found his coin collection. And then he got interested in mint products and he's hoping that he can secure a uh, 75th anniversary coin with privy mark, even though the mintage was only limited to 1945. But during the period when he was laid up, he purchased a lot of, of American Eagles and he purchased mint products with the idea that these are going to be Christmas presents to his grandchildren. And that's where something, if you don't look at it as like, gee, what's this worth? If you look at it simply as this is a beautiful coin. When I purchased the coin from the Royal Mint with the Greyhound on it, it was because it had a Greyhound on it. It wasn't because I was going to go put it into a vending machine. It's the idea that the coins have, they tell the stories. You want to look at the stories and you want to be able to reach in, you know, someday you have nothing to do. There's nothing on TV that interests you. You want to look at the coins. You want to read Coin World. You want to read the, the website, learn about these things. I think that, uh, you know, the fact that we're not using them, spending them, may not have an impact upon the hobby because they are looked upon as not currency, not as coins, but simply as historic activities or just things that make you feel good just by looking at them. You know, you think Abraham Lincoln, can he talk when he's on the scent? You know, you look at the picture of, of George Washington. Is that what he really looked like? You know, you kind of wonder about that kind of stuff because how accurate were the, uh, the, were the representations of people that you can't, you know, I don't know that George Washington looks like he does on the 25 cent piece. He's not going to come to my door and try to sell me insurance. So I don't know that that's what he looks like. I have to accept that on faith. And we've been accepting it on faith for generations. And it's always interesting that uh, when if we get these new designs, if we get these new coins, just like the activity when the America the Beautiful came out, to a, to a degree when the state program came out, the excitement of getting the folders, getting the albums, and getting these coins, then you start to realize it's a whole big world out there. It goes beyond the American, the U.S. coins. It goes beyond the current denominations. Did you know there's a half cent? Did you know that the scent used to be bigger than it is? You didn't? Well, you can find out about that. And that makes it neat. And then you might find something you love about that. And uh, I think it's especially true in the area where you are, Chris, when you have the, the colonialism that was involved with it. You know, down in, in places out west, if you get into the, the 1850s and that type of thing, then that's different. But, you know, it's all the relatability of where you are, who you are, and what you think. And it all depends on how you want to look at it. No two people are the same. You can give two people a coin that looks exactly the same. One may be numismatically inclined, and one may want to put it on railroad track. <laughs> That's true. And to expand on that final point, what is your read, whether in the comments section on Coin World's articles or, or any responses you've gotten from readers or public comments that you've heard elsewhere. What's your sense as to how collectors are responding to these new programs? Is there a sense of fatigue at the number of programs and the sort of breadth of subjects that are being commemorated? Are people excited about it? How is the collecting community responding to the proposed designs and programs? When you go with the idea that somebody is not going to take an action unless they're, you know, emotionally involved in some way. I mean, a lot of times the comments are going to be negative because you do something and somebody doesn't like it. He tells 10 people you do something somebody likes. He may tell one person. 
And a lot of the times, and it's mostly the Facebook comments that I look at, is because when you announce that when Paul does a story on on the mint products, you know, right away, that those are the ones that seem to elicit the most comments. And most of those comments are pretty much in the camp of they don't like it, it's too expensive, I quit collecting mint products years ago, okay, then why are you ringing in on this? It's a lot of negative. But then again, that goes back to how we tend to not express our excitement too much, but we will express our negativity. I mean, you go onto any social media platform and my God, you know, the comments about negative things, you know, guy catches an eight inch fish. Well, why didn't you catch a 10 inch fish? Well, that's what he caught, you know? So it's just the idea that when the mint puts out a program, uh, you know, especially because people sometimes don't seem to understand they have obligations to meet. They have to make a certain amount of money or they're not going to be around. And that's why when the price increase came out on the silver, on the 15 silver products, I mean, you'd have thought World War Three was about to start or World War Four, whichever one we're on. But you'd have thought that, you know, that that was horrible. And here's the point. If you don't like it, don't buy it. Bottom line. But, you know, people have to have their viewpoints on that. If somebody's a collector of, of uh, Morgan dollars, there's really nothing the Mint can do until we regenerate the uh, piece in Morgan in 2021 to get them excited about anything. They could care less about Eagles or, or anything that goes along the line. I mean, you get people that get really excited when uh, the W quarters come out and PCGS has their quarter quest and people are looking for them and, and coming up with them. That's great. But, you know, there are a lot of people that take the time to sit down and say, this is a bad idea. This is a dumb idea. They get, personal on the mint director and they don't necessarily understand everything that's involved all they see is it's a continuation of an error you know again go back to the colorization and the world you know coming off the rails about that well if you don't like it don't buy it bottom line so there's still a lot of people that ring in up but to answer your question like it should have been answered two and a half minutes ago we see a lot more negative comments than we do positive comments and that is true. You know, this is not just uh, specific to the U.S. Mint. Uh, as somebody who writes about world coins, we see this with other mints around the world. Probably the most recent example, very timely, was the New Zealand Mint's latest release in their series of chibi coins. That's C-H-I-B-I. I, I had no idea what a chibi was until this fiasco really blew up on the socials. A chibi is like a plastic figurine made from a character, and you can you can get your own, you, you can chibify yourself, if you will, if you want to go to that length. And the New Zealand Mint took that concept, that stylized look, and started making coins with that look. And they're flat, but they're, you know, they're shaped so that they look like a figurine or a figure, uh, an outline, if you will. And their latest release a couple weeks ago, I think it was you could buy up to 10 per order and you could make multiple orders. And the sale crashed the Mint's website. There were, you know, a whole bunch of, what it comes down to is speculators. And it's, it's not lost on me that anytime people are complaining, it's about their chance to make money with money. It's, you know, oh, I wasn't able to get in and get this, say, the, the 1945-2020 uh, 75th anniversary gold or silver coin that has low mintages, relatively speaking. Uh, the mint crashed. All these big dealers bought them up, so on and so forth. You know, this is all being fueled by the desire to make money. And yes, the mints have to make a profit or they are not in business. That is... 100% that makes total sense. But, you know, in the in the case of the New Zealand Mint and the Chibi exercise, if you will, or kerfuffle, the Mint canceled a bunch of orders and that rippled all throughout dealers and collectors that were hoping to get these pieces. They had based sort of, you know, pre-sales on the supposition that earlier in the series they got uh, a certain number of coins and the way the new issues market works is there are a bunch of established dealers that the, the mints will reach out and say, hey, this is a, a pre-sale or we're looking for allocation commitments, whatever. And uh, somebody might order 100 for a coin that has 888 mintage. 
And the mint comes back to them and says, well, you know, we got enough pre-commitments for three times the number of coins that are being made. So we cut yours to a third of that and you only get, say, 35 instead of the 100 you want. That's fairly typical for the new release situation. And a lot of this stuff, these mints are working six months to a year out marketing-wise, and in many cases, a couple years out design-wise and, and so forth, and concept-wise. You know, so when I go to the World Money Fair in Berlin, as I did this year, and breaking news, it was canceled for 2021 as of yesterday, um, November 2nd, you know, I'll sit down with the folks from various mints, and they'll say, hey, this is what we're working on. You know, this is already, quote-unquote, sold out. And Striking that the coin hasn't even begun. Well, how can you sell out a coin that hasn't even been made yet? Well, again, you have these distributors who are saying, oh, I think I can sell a bunch of those to my base of collectors, you know, count me in for a certain number. It ripples through the chain that way. And it's very hard if you're not part of that system to wedge yourself into it and, and to start getting commitments and start, how do you become a distributor? I can remember 10 years ago, maybe there was a big name in the U S industry who told somebody at coin world that, Hey, they were going to go to such and such a mint. You know, they were going to this country and they wanted a meeting at the mint. And I was like, well, how, how do you, you can't just assume that because people know you hear that they're going to give you the time of day there when you haven't sold anything for them. You know, you're showing up as the new guy on the block and you're trying to wedge yourself into that market. And there's already existing sales channels. There's folks that have relationships. Many of these folks on the marketing side, on the sales side, if they're not at the same mint, uh, that they were 20 years ago, they just shifted laterally or they went to a different mint. You know, I mean, it's it's a family in a sense. And, you know, everybody knows everybody. And it's not, that's not nefarious. It's just, hey, you know, I know that if I need something about such and such, I can talk to Veronica or, you know, I can talk to Adam or I can, you know, any of these folks, I, I see them by name and, and know them. And even if they're no longer with the firm that they were with when I started and when they started, they're still interested in making coins that are interesting and that collectors want. And so we can get the information that way. And of course, they're meeting with all their different contacts to, to try to find markets for these products. And inevitably, folks are going to be left out in the cold if there's a low mintage and it's hot and, you know, the new issues market is so diffuse and so different from the classic stuff. But it's an important segment because that's what keeps a lot of these mints operational these days. Most, again, most of the angst is, oh, I, I missed out on the chance to get this and I see that everybody else wants this and so I can get it and it'll be worth more. Whether somebody wants to sell it right away for a profit, whether somebody's looking for long-term results, the same principle exists there that most of the time that when you have these complaints, it's people that are attuned to uh, these opportunities and occasionally you'll see somebody say, oh, I really want that because I'd love to build the set. That just is less so. There's certainly some of that. You know, there's folks who fall in love with the coin when they see it or whatever. But to me, the response really seems to be dictated by the opportunity for profit. Does that make sense? Did I Am I missing something? Did I say too much, Larry? No, not to me. I mean, it's a you described a business model that's common in a lot of businesses. I mean, I right as you were t describing it, I'm thinking of the days back in the automotive parts industry, and you have the trade shows where you make the re relationships and you set up the deals, and when things become available, you know, you are a distributor of this product, and you you get you order this many. Well, the, we only made X number, and yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it's a perfect business model. It's just depending upon where you are in that chain. If you're on the outside looking in, then it's unfair. If you're on the uh, on the inside because you've done your due diligence and you've established your relationships and that type of thing, well, it's most certainly fair because that's the way it's done. I mean, supply and demand type thing has always been one of the things you can get into, you know, all the business from, from day one on this. This is how business is done. And, uh, you know, you talk about 
people being upset about. I, you know, as you were talking about that, I thought about the latest uh, that I read about from the Royal Men on the diversity coin. And people were that that's a waste of our, our resources. And that's, you know, no, it's not. It's, you know, it's, it's a piece that if you don't like it, don't buy it. And there are going to be people who do buy it. So I think what you uh, what you said right there is totally accurate. That coin to which you refer is a circulating coin with a relatively small mintage compared to the population in Great Britain. Uh, but, you know, we know that uh, circulating coins, the, the general population, the, the non-collector, somebody who's not attuned to collect, they're not going to pay much attention to it, honestly. They see that it's the same size as everything else that they're using, you know, whatever, they move on. You know, there are folks for new issues, for instance. I know a guy, a wonderful guy in California who deals in classics and new stuff and, you know, on that affordable end. And he's happy to obtain stocks of that new diversity coin and be able to sell it for $5 a piece to the collectors who just want here in the U.S. I mean, he'll sell around the world, but, you know, who just want to have an example of that new coin because, hey, it's different from the standard that's out there. And, you know, they're happy to make a couple bucks a coin and sell a lot of them. And, you know, for that coin to get to California from the UK, you know, there's somebody who has to spend the time, hunt them down in the, the United Kingdom. They have to then find a connection to, you know, so that he gets it, then it's shipped and, you know, it's, it's shipping these days. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, there's the risk of that and the length of that. And so that he's going to buy a coin for maybe 250 from his supplier and sell it for five bucks and he's gonna you know put it in an envelope and put a label on the envelope and you know, there's a lot of handling and a lot of i don't think it's unfair for him to do that when yes that coin only has a face value of say 78 cents but to get it right away or relatively quickly there are stations on the journey that have to be made and reached and and that's just part of it that strikes me as a case of paying for convenience to some extent, too. Yes. If you want the coin when you want it, if you want it relatively quickly, then you have to be willing to pay for that. And that also reminds me of um, the Heads Up documentary. One of the people that Edik and Kovach interviewed said that, in his view, I, I can't remember exactly what his role was. I believe that he was involved in some kind of a in some kind of a trade group that dealt with consumer spending patterns. And he said that the factor that he thought would end up being most determinative in the life of the cent, or the life or eventual termination of the cent, would not be government cost or lobbying from mining groups or anything like that. It was actually ultimately going to be convenience, and that if it was more convenient to have uh, transactions that round to the nearest five cent then that would probably be the system we would ultimately adopt. But hearing from both of you, it's interesting to me that consumers of, of new releases and modern mint products, whether modern U.S. mint products or modern world mint products, it seems to me that collectors of modern material conceptualize value somewhat differently than collectors of historic material might, in the sense that if a collector finds a coin unattractive, the design is not aesthetically pleasing to them. Or if the coin is really rare, if it has a limited mintage, that those are things that will really engage and pique the interest of a collector of modern mint products. Obviously, rarity is a huge component of value for historic pieces as well. But it's interesting to me the differences in the sort of characteristics of the coins that people sort of gravitate towards. And Larry, your point about the public comments about the new programs being largely negative, I'm curious, do you think that that reflects at all on the kind of quality of the ideas behind them? Do you think, or do you think that that's just a symptom of people who comment on these things tend to have an ax to grind? Do you think that that's a, a indicative of a larger collector pattern? Or is that just a handful of people who are have their sort of pet issue that they're annoyed about? I tend to believe it's more like a handful of issues who have a pet peeve or have, you know, they got shut out of a deal somewhere down, you know, a couple of years back or the, you know, they fell victim to one of the situations where they didn't get the email in time to make the purchase or they have some other issue with it. They don't like it, like the colorization type thing, because and they just want to have their voices be heard. Some people, you know, we all have egos. Some egos are more active than others. Some people just want their voice to be heard. And social media has become a great place for that to happen when it's an opinion that 
nobody should care about about yourself, but you still put it out there and you're, you're seeking like-minded people. You're seeking likes to your comment and, and hearts and that type of thing. There's never been constructive criticism. It's always just criticism. <laughs> it's never, you know, one of those. I mean, it's always bring back this design or something like that, you know, that type of thing. There's never been anything to say why. I mean, the coin still has its metal content. It still has all of the things that are constant. It's just that it didn't strike somebody the way that it should have or would have or could have or he ran out of Wheaties that day or whatever the case may be. But it's just that a negative comment will breed a negative comment in a lot of cases. Positive comment, not so much. Positive comment, more times than not, will bring somebody to say, yeah, but, and then they argue against it. And so then the dialogue begins and you get wrapped up in social media banner back and forth and you feel like you've got to have your opinion heard and regardless of what side it's on. But I mean, not knowing these individuals personally, not having any kind of interaction with them, hopefully they're all subscribers to the magazine. Hopefully they're all subscribers to the podcast and they're certainly entitled to their opinions. That's what makes this country great is the fact that you're allowed to have an opinion and I'm allowed not to agree to it. So it's just some situation like that. I think some of the comments can be unfounded. I think some can be downright mean because the mint is not a bad, it's not a bad thing after all. I mean, just because the design wasn't what you wanted it to be. Think about those poor persons in the uh, AIP that didn't get their designs chosen. And they're, they're trying hard to come up with a design that's going to be universally accepted. But, you know, I learned a long time ago, if you please 51% of the people, then you're, you've done a great job. And uh, sometimes it seems like the mint doesn't get their 51%. When in reality, it probably did. Right. And we've been lucky enough to talk to some AIP artists on the podcast. And it's always interesting to hear how they approach different topics or different designs. And you mentioned, you know, that there are plenty of designs that ultimately don't get selected. And then, of course, there are people who collect pattern coins of historical designs that, that weren't ultimately selected. I take your point seriously there. And I also can't help but think that the anonymity of Internet comments makes it harder to discern which criticisms are in good faith and which are just trolling as well. So, you know, that that adds another layer of difficulty. But they're going to have that anyway. I mean, I love, you know, the sports reference is, you know, growing up and you are a fan of a particular baseball team and you hate this other particular baseball team. And then all of a sudden the star from that other particular baseball team gets traded to your team. Now this guy that you hated so much is the guy that you love the most. And it's just interesting that all because of the uniform that he wore is what's determining the factor here. And it's interesting with the coin and all because it has an eagle the way that you don't want the eagle to be. You'd prefer him to be flying versus standing versus, you know, whatever. And so then it's just interesting how people have their own their own quirks and their own likes, wants, wishes and desires. And then changes can placate or they can infuriate or whatever the case may be but just the idea that you can't please everybody and you just keep trying i mean if you just stuck with one thing and said everybody's happy with this sooner or later somebody's not going to be happy yeah (laughs) i like the sports analogies because i i'm automatically i'm a baseball fan and as as you larry know and some of the listeners know i'm from st louis and i love the cardinals Now, this guy never made it to the Cardinals, but whenever Brandon Phillips played for the Reds, you know, could not stand him. But I can respect him as a hard-nosed baseball player. And, you know, I was fortunate or unfortunate to go to Cincinnati and see the Reds beat the Cardinals on a walk-off home run by Brandon Phillips. There were people around me, I'm wearing Cardinal stuff, and they're, you know, ha-ha, whatever. And I'm like, hey. He won the game. You know, that's it, it's just a game. And the joy on his face as he circled the, the bases, you know, as a baseball fan, you can't not have respect and at least appreciate the moment for what it was, even though, gosh, it was my, quote unquote, my team. I'm, I'm not that tribalistic that I couldn't see beyond the jersey. But, you know, it, it reminds me of the, uh, the Onion story 20 years ago. The sports team from my area will beat the sports team from your area, you know, and it, and it just, you know, <laughs> the, this idea that um, we are in the right and anybody who is not there with us is in the wrong. And again, it harkens back to something we've said from day one of this podcast. This is a big tent hobby. There's room for everybody to find the fun 
and the passion wherever they find it. And I think on that note, that's probably a good place to, to wrap up. Thank you uh, so much for this wonderful discussion and foray, uh, newsy little talk uh, about some, some of the things going on in the hobby. Well, I appreciate the opportunity as well, because I mean, I think dialogue is more important than criticism in, in a lot of cases. And, you know, some of the things that the Mint does, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but not to the point where I'm going to rail them over the coals, because here again, we had a boss one time that told us, if you're going to bring a problem to me, bring a solution as well. And uh, in this case, the, what the men is doing is not a problem. I mean, it's obvious that there, there's quite an attraction there for whatever they do, whether these people agree with it or not. I mean, they're still in business. They've been in business since 1794. They're still doing what they have to do here. They're still taking care of the, uh, the functionality of the coins itself. And it just depends on, you know, when you're talking about mint products, how do you look upon them? I mean, do you look upon the value as what they're going to bring in resale? Do you look upon the value of what you feel when you look at it, when you hold it in your hands, when you feel the weight of it, that type of thing, then, you know, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, what does a visually impaired person think about when they have a coin like this in their hand? They could think it's an absolute beauty. They could think, you know, that it's just that they can appreciate the, the effort that went into making the design and keeping the elements that needed to be kept, the e pluribus unum and in God we trust and the things that we had to, and finding places for the words that have to be on there, because let's face it, words can sometimes impede the capabilities that you have on the palette to make the design. So, but those words are necessary. They're absolutely positively welcome. But the idea is that, you know, the products that are created and you just take a shot. When Ford created the Edsel, they didn't know it was going to be a bummer. They took the shot and believed it was going to work. When they created the Corvette in St. Louis back in the day, they just, you know, didn't know it was going to be the sensation it still is today. Same thing goes with the coin. When the U.S. Mint or any of the mints around the world design a coin, they're hoping that it's the best thing since sliced bread. But it's not always the case. And you can't have home runs every time or you still lose. Sliced bread invented in Missouri. No no joke. And if Ford had stopped at the Edsel, then we wouldn't have gotten the Mustang. Uh, It's interesting that you note about a visually impaired person and how they would encounter this because uh, go back and listen to our interview with uh, Tom Babinski, the blind collector. You know, we talk about how somebody can access coins in a different way. And again, on that note, that's a good call to say thank you for those listening. We hope you found this uh, instructive and enjoyable and do check out those earlier shows and stay tuned for future conversations because we're going to keep trying to explore the numismatic world and discern what it means for today. Larry had the questions, or rather, we had the questions and Larry had the answers, or one form of that or the other. We hope you enjoyed our discussion in any event, and we, again, thank you for electing to listen to the Coin World Podcast. We hope you'll give us four more weeks and maybe four more months and perhaps even four more years. Uh, so to do that, just subscribe on whatever platform you're accessing your podcast. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from Coin World. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.